uh, before jumping into the, the scripture reading, we talked to our kids. If you will flip toward the back, if you have a, a bulletin with you, flip, flip towards the back of your order of worship. You're going to see a comic strip there. It might look familiar. Anybody here know uh, Charlie Brown? Okay, you know Charlie Brown? Great. And you know his friends, Peanut? You know the Peanuts, the gang? Uh, okay, uh, they are famous. Charlie Brown, like, it's almost Christmas time, we said earlier. Uh, Charlie Brown, Christmas. Before Christmas, there's Halloween. Great Charlie Brown and the Great Pumpkin. All his friends, Charlie Brown and his friends, are really famous for saying, can grief had ever be a good thing? Kids, what do y'all think? Can being sad ever be a good thing? Yes or no? That's good. Let's think about that. Okay, if you look at this comic strip, I know the print is really, really small. That's what it would look like in the newspaper, though. Okay, there is this comic strip here. This one is about Lucy and her younger brother, Linus. Okay, Lucy is is a big bully. She's always beating up Linus. She's always mean to her little brother. Well, in this comic right here, you can see she's super sad. She's super sad, and she's just really feeling sorry for herself for all the hard things that are going on in her life. Uh, and, and then Linus comes along, and he says something really good to her. Linus says, maybe you should be thankful for the blessings that you have. And, and, and Lucy snaps back at him like she's just about to pummel him. And she's like, what blessings, huh? And then Linus, Linus says, well, for one thing, you have a brother who loves you. And then Lucy, you look at it right at the end. What is she? She bursts into tears and she just melts in her brother's arms, hugging him. And then Linus says, Every now and then I say the right thing. Here's this thing at first, Lucy is super sad and she's feeling sorry for herself, right? Okay, that is not a good sadness. That's not a good grief. But then her brother comes along and Linus says that even though she is terrible to him, he loves her. And then she bursts into tears because she, she's treated her brother so bad, her brother who loves her, and she realizes it. I've been so mean to my brother who loves me. And she realizes she loves her brother. That is kids today. What changes Lucy's heart from bad grief to good grief? What, what do you think changes her? Any thoughts? Linus changes her with what? Is he mean to her? He's kind to her. What changes her is love. It's grace. Here's the so what. Like, here's like, okay, wait, what does this have to do with the Bible? Okay, right here. We're all going to feel sad in this life, right? Because we sin, we mess up, we hurt others, or because people sin and they hurt us and we're just suffering for whatever reason. Like, we, we're going to have, we have hard things in our life. But just feeling sorry for ourselves Kids, just feeling sorry for yourself, either when you sin or when things are hard for you, just feeling sorry for yourself, that's not a good grief. That's a bad grief. A good grief is when you hurt someone else, you feel bad because you shouldn't hurt someone else. You should love them. A good grief is when things are hard and you just feel sorry for yourself, uh, you don't just stay there. You actually go to Jesus and say, things are hard. I need you. A good grief is when you sin and you realize, man, that hurts my relationship with Jesus. And a good grief will do this. A good grief, it will always take you to Jesus. And what you are going to remember is, even though you treat Jesus badly, either because you don't trust him or because you sin, what is Jesus always going to tell you? I love you. I still love you. Even... Good grief is going to take you to Jesus. And he's going to remind you over and over and over again, even though you treat him badly, 
He loves you. He loves you so much. He died for your sin. He died for your suffering. And what you will find is your good grief will actually, even when you don't realize it, Jesus will turn your good grief into joy. That's what we're going to talk about today, is taking our grief to Jesus. We're in our summer series in 2 Corinthians. This is a letter that Paul writes after 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> very, very different letters, though, to the same church. One, 1 Corinthians deals with a series of problems. 2 Corinthians just deals with one problem. The church doesn't like Paul anymore. And the 2 Corinthians is, is actually this really hard letter. It's hard to understand because the flow of the letter is so hard to understand. So here is the flow. And even if you're, you're just joining us for the first time, here, here's the flow. <clears throat> Paul, last, in the last chapter, Paul was just talking about these false teachers that have come in and taken over the church in Corinth with a false gospel. That's, and he says the church needs to kick these false teachers out. Okay, And now what we're going to see this morning is now he is talking about a past situation that he dealt with in a previous letter that we don't have anymore. There's actually another Corinthians letter in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians uh, dealing with, he's talking about a past situation in which he dealt with a previous bad leader in the church that they needed to get rid of. And they actually did. Okay, so please stand for the reading of God's word. 2nd Corinthians, we're going to start in chapter 7. Verse 5, <clears throat> Paul says, When we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> okay, the flow. The, uh, the Corinthians got Paul's first letter, what we call 1 Corinthians, right? And they actually did not like it. And a rebellion formed in the church. This is after 1 Corinthians, this rebellion formed in the church, and it's led by one guy. So Paul returned to visit the church. He goes back to Corinth, to, and he tries to put down the rebellion and how they're rejecting the gospel. But the church, they sided with that other guy. And they send Paul away. They reject Paul, and they, and they kick him out. They send him away. Paul went back to Ephesus, and he wrote this other letter that we, we don't have. In God's providence, we don't have anymore. Uh, and, but we know that this letter was a last-ditch effort to rebuke the church and to bring them back to the gospel. 
Now, he referred to it in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, this, this in-between letter, and he refers to it right here in chapter 7 again as this, as this painful letter that he wrote. And what happened was Paul sent Titus, a young minister, a companion of Paul, he sent Titus to take that letter to the church in Corinth and then report back ASAP because Paul's freaking out. He's got to know how they're going to respond. And as soon as Titus departs with this letter, Paul starts having all these regrets about what he wrote. Like he says, he, like, he's, like, was he too harsh? Did I say it right? Did I phrase it right? Is this just going to cause more problems? Did, did I just ruin our relationship? So when Paul heard back from Titus that the Corinthians responded well to Paul's letter by putting that rebel leader under church discipline, he rejoiced. He's overjoyed because they were grieved, but not just grieved, because they were grieved into repenting. The Corinthians' grief over their sin, according to Paul, was according to God's will. That is, that is, Paul says, verse 9, you felt a godly grief. That is, God intended for the Corinthians to be sorrowful. And that right there, you don't want to miss that point. The idea lies in the face, happy. Houston is infamous for this kind of talk. Talk, it's all over, all over Houston, it's all over our country, it's all over the world, and it's not new. This is what the Corinthians had been duped into believing. Because there was, <clears throat> there was a minority in the church, after this painful letter, there's a minority in the church that were not grieved into repenting from Paul's painful letter, but they continued to reject Paul as an apostle. Because after they kicked out that first rebel leader, this always happens without strong leadership, somebody's going to fill the vacuum. Well, these outsiders, they come into Corinth right after they've kicked out one bad leader. These other guys come in and they fill the power vacuum. These are these so-called, they are self-labeled super apostles. Uh, and these are the guys that Paul has been opposing all of 2 Corinthians. And their message is this prosperity gospel. If you believe in God and you're a good person and you do good, you will see God's blessings in your life. Like right now, this life, this life, it will go well for you. You, you can expect it to because God will bless you, bless your life with health, expect wealth, expect success. <clears throat> Alistair Begg, who is a Baptist, Scottish minister, pastoring in Cleveland, Ohio. It's just really funny. Alistair Begg, Scotsman. He's a Baptist pastor in Cleveland. Uh, he's heard this all over. He's an older minister. He's, he's traveled around all the world, preached all around the world. Uh, this is how he explains it. He says, it is tempting to preach. I want you to come here every Sunday and have a wonderful time. And you're supposed to be very positive, and you're supposed to be very happy. And whatever, whatever happens in the service, the one thing that I don't want you to do is go away unhappy because God wants you to be very happy. Except, where is that in the Bible? Paul writes the Corinthians and he says, God wanted you to be sorry, which is not the same thing as being happy, except that God wanted them to be happy only after they had been sorry. Too much preaching misses out that vital bit and people don't become happy. They become sorry because they, want, because they don't want to be sorry. If they want, to be ha they want to be happy, if they would discover what it is to be sorry, then they'd be really happy. 
Makes sense? As Alistair explains it. Okay, but, 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 this is, this is not all sorrow. Not all sorrow, not all tears lead to salvation. There are two kinds of grief. Worldly grief, Paul says, and godly grief. Godly grief leads to unending life with no regret. Worldly grief produces death. There is a kind of crying that is lethal, that'll kill you. The worldly grief. The worldly grief, what this is, is it does not think in terms of what grief has to do. Worldly grief only thinks in terms of self. Worldly grief is upset over the consequences of a bad decision rather than being upset over the bad decision itself or how it's affected others. Worldly grief is, is that kind of grief that's just upset at getting caught, not about the damage that's done. Worldly grief, it focuses on shame, not guilt. Worldly grief makes oneself out to be the victim when it's you who has hurt someone else. <clears throat> a poem by Anna Russell, an English comedian, she puts it really well. She says, this is, of course, oversimplified, but it's a good point. She says, I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed, to find out why I killed the cat and blackened my husband's eyes. He laid me on a downy couch to see what he could find. So this is what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in a trunk, and so it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that is why I suffer now from kleptomania, eh? I guess this is British. <laughs> okay. At three, I had the feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally. I poisoned all my lovers. But I am happy, now I've learned, the lesson this has taught, that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. That sorrowful self-pity, uh, that does not bring someone to God, and it produces death. That phrase that's there that Paul uses, produces death, it means there is a kind of grief that will kill you. <clears throat> Call Truman He's a church historian, he's an author, he's a cultural commentator. Uh, he wrote an article last week about the current outrage that is sweeping the country, uh, what, we could, what we could call wor the worldly grief sweeping the country. <clears throat> he explains that the current outrage, this worldly grief that we are witnessing, is over what he calls the myth of the modern self. The myth of the modern self is that human beings are defined by their freedom. They're defined by their, their autonomy rather than being defined by their dependence and obligation. So Truman says, he's picking on the cultural elite here, he says the cultural elite are erupting in this outrage, in this worldly grief, because that guiding myth, it is being contradicted. This guiding myth that we, that we are defined by our autonomy, we're defined by our freedom, it's being contradicted and it's being challenged by things like the repeal of the right to abortion. It's being challenged by arguments over transgenderism and transhumanism. Uh, and he says, when a culture's, culture's guiding myths are challenged, one can expect those committed to them to be very angry and to hit back with force. So to say... To, to challenge and to say, to, to challenge this guiding myth and say, our bodies place limits on us and that we cannot be whatever, that we cannot be whoever we wish. It's not only invalid, today that will cost you your career. 
Truman says, we have now reached the point where this guiding myth, it's, it's become a lie, uh, a lie that we're being forced to affirm. Because just think of myths in and of themselves. You don't have to force myths on people. Myths, just, they just capture the imagination. He says, but when you are made to believe a myth, once force and intimidation are necessary, the myth surely becomes a lie, something that is known to be untrue, but to which loyalty is demanded by our cultural power brokers anyway. And we don't, we don't want to let ourselves off the hook here. It's not just cultural power brokers. As in, let's, I, 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 I don't like that my body puts limits on me. I hate it. Uh, I don't like that I have. I don't like that I have natural obligations to others. I am furious that I cannot be whatever and whoever I want to be. You too. But that is a worldly grief. That if we let it stay there, it'll produce death. Here's a here's a here's a simplified version of what Carl Truman's talking about. Another pastor uh, talks about this worldly grief being tied up with, the, the, the way he puts it is the myth of good me. As in, I'm good, and if you've seen something in me that's not good, then you've misunderstood me. What, what grows out of the myth of good me is, if you say something to me, and the net effect after you say it is, I don't feel better about myself, after you say it, then it's invalid. And this is whether or, not, whether or not you know Jesus. Everyone has a conscience, and our brokenness and our weakness challenges the me myth so, that, so we feel bad because there are people out there who don't understand that I'm the most important person. They feel person, that kind of, and because their true concern is for themselves, they look for some kind of self-therapy to make themselves happy. And they, David Wells, he, he uh, says that without the holiness of God, sin is just failure, but not failure before God. It is failure without the presumption of guilt, without retrib retribution, indeed without any serious moral meaning at all. And I just have to quote Alistair Begg again because this is so good. He says that the fact that people regard sin as a Christian neurosis does not make sin a Christian neurosis. Make people feel bad about themselves. As in, like, life is hard enough, the world is depressing enough without having to come to church and hear I am a terrible person. Yeah, I, get, I get that. But, but, do you go to the doctor to lie to you and tell you everything is okay? And some of you are thinking, yeah. And this is why some of you never go to the doctor. I would rather not know. Yes, lie to me. Police, like, yes, I would rather my doctor just lie to me. Okay, okay, but, but why if there is a cure? Like, sometimes people see their suffering uh, that it that sometimes people really do see that their suffering it has to do with their sin. It, it has to do with their fallenness, their weakness. And they should go to God, but they deny all of it. And it's like getting, it's like getting bit by a venomous snake. Like you know it, and it's curable if you'll go to the doctor, but you don't go. As in, I'll be fine. Okay, but that will kill you. And sometimes people really do not see, they don't see what their grief has to do with God. 
So they just stay away from him. It's, it's, like, it's like a melanoma. Uh, it, it's curable if you'll go to the doctor regularly to find out what's wrong with you. But they don't go, and they die. Whether it's grief over your suffering or whether it is grief over your sin. He's, it's, it's, all, it's both are there. It's not just grief over sin. Whether it's grief over your legitimate suffering or it's grief over your sin, so many of us grieving over our suffering, we don't want to go to Jesus with it because we're struggling with, we too are struggling with that prosperity notion of, I don't deserve, like, I don't deserve this thing. I don't get it. Like I'm a good person. Like why has God let this happen to me? This is worldly grief. But there is another grief, Paul says, that God wants to give us for our good that leads to our salvation, which means that this godly grief, it is a gift from God. She begs that question of, wait, how can, how can grief be a gift? Uh, Paul says uh, towards the end of his ministry, 2 Timothy 3.16, and he says it really simple. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. I don't like being corrected. But that's what God does to change us, to lead us to life. This is one of the last things that Paul writes to his beloved friend Timothy. Uh, uh, the, it's in the hard stuff of the gospel it is meant to cut you to the heart, to stir up those affections, and maybe you walk away not feeling happy. And, that, that, and that's, not, that's not invalid. Your grief, it is real. And it could be God doing great things in your heart. Because not all grieving leaves you just sad. There is good that comes from good grief. Verses 9 and 10, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What indice of God is in like you get near to a blazing bonfire like that is so good, but whoa, that is like, that is awesome. Like that kind of fear. What longing, what zeal, what punishment, which would be better translated as church discipline. That is leading others to repentance. Good grief in a nutshell, good grief produces repentance. And we've said this before. Please remember, please walk away if you don't hear anything else. This is that one thing. I'll hear this. Remember, repentance is it's a good turning, but it is not first and foremost turning from doing bad to turning to doing good. It is turning from bad to Jesus. That is repentance. It's turning to his grace. It is turning to his love. It is turning to his forgiveness, his abiding presence in your grief. Whether it's going to him in grief over your suffering and your weakness and telling him you need his strength and you need his love just to get through the day, just to keep going. Or whether it is going to him in grief over your sin and telling him you need his forgiveness, you need his grace, and you need his help to pursue reconciliation with other people that you've hurt. Good grief produces repentance. Good grief produces zeal. That simple stuff of, I don't want to stay this way. I want to change. I want Jesus. 
Good grief produces longing. I want to want to change. I want to want Jesus. And it could be, it could be the areas, the areas where you feel apathetic, the areas where you feel stagnant in your life, they could be areas that you have not grieved. Or perhaps you are grieving, but not with a godly grief. Which you've got to, and you've got to answer that question. Okay, well then what will transform our worldly grief into a godly grief leading to repentance in life? It is not the law. It is not this prosperity sham of be better, do better, hope for the best, and your best life now is yet to come. It is not that. It is godly grief, and godly grief comes from the gospel of grace, of what Jesus has done. On the night that he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the gospels describe Jesus as sorrowful. And Jesus tells his best friends, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And then he goes off by himself and he prays to his father and he tells his father in heaven, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's talking, his sorrow is all about this cup and it's the cup of God's wrath against sin and evil. And like a strong drink that you, you, you drink it first with your nose before you take a sip of it, I mean, here is Jesus, and he can smell it. He can smell the cup of God's wrath. He's taking it in of what is to come on the cross. He's tasting the wrath of God right there against sin. In this most amazing sermon by 18th century American pastor and philosopher Jonathan Edwards called Christ's Agony, uh, he explains why God, why does God do this to Jesus? Then not why, like, why not just get to the cross? Like, why does God do this to Jesus here and now? And it is because on the cross Jesus is nailed. He's in public, surrounded by enemies, family, friends, disciples. On the cross, it, it, it's, it's almost like it's not. It's almost like it's as good as done. The wrath comes. There's no going back. Here in the garden, Jesus gets a foretaste of what is to come, and there's no one around. He's all alone. His friends are asleep. The betrayers the betrayer, the soldiers, they're not there yet. He is in a remote place. He could take off. Escape and no one would know. So the father comes to Jesus. You are in for him the cup. And if you don't drink the cup of wrath, they will have to drink it themselves. Either you take the wrath. Jesus could have responded, could have said, why should I? So glorious infinitely greater than all the angels of heaven. Why should I plunge myself into such dreadful torments for worthless, wretched worms that deserve to be hated by me, not loved? Why should I, who have been living from all eternity in the enjoyment of the Father's love, go to cast myself into such a furnace for them that can never repay me for it, who can't even stay awake with me for an hour in my greatest need? And instead, Jesus says, yes, I'll do it. And it's because he loves you. The question is, but do you see how much he loves you? Edwards says, Jesus had full view of the furnace, its fierce and raging flames. He saw what the cup was before he took it and drank it, which means when he took that cup, knowing what was in it, so was his love to us, 
infinitely more wonderful. This is the love of Jesus for you in the midst of his infinite grief. God loves us unconditionally, but he is grieved by our sin. Our sin does matter to God. How we treat other people matters to God. How other people treat us and our suffering matters to God. He can, be, he can be displeased and he can grieve, but that does not compromise his fatherly, gracious love to us. Because Jesus died for us because of his intense love for us. He grieved over our condition that we were a people ready for judgment, so he came and he did something about it. Self-pity that will kill you. His love, his grace, it doesn't erase your, gra- your grief, but it changes it. It brings you back to him, and with him, you have life. Let's pray. Father, we would rather just not have grief, um, and, and that's something we need to be able to admit to you. Of We'd rather just be easy. We'd rather just be happy, and so we need faith. We need faith to believe and trust that you have given us grief. You've given us suffering. Uh, Uh, You've given us uh, heartache over our sin, hurting others, hurting our relationship to you, mistreating others, mistreating Jesus. Lord, you've given us that grief to draw us back to you. Lord, let us not take our grief for granted. We pray in our own individual lives and that this would be the kind of place that we can come and lament together our own sin and our own brokenness and frailty, knowing that it really does bring us back to you and coming back to you to see your, your love, that, that your love is even bigger than we thought it was. We, we do. We pray that we would leave here seeing the cross bigger today than it was yesterday. We pray that tomorrow we're going to wake up and, and, and believe and see the cross even bigger tomorrow than it is today. We pray that that would never end until we are with you again, that we get to, when we get to be with you, commune with you. Father, we, we, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for being in the midst of us right now. We believe that you are preserving us. When you call us home or you come back, Lord, Lord, come. We pray, Lord, come quickly. Preserve us until you do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.